Welcome to Flourish, a podcast where we look at powerful ideas and learn to put them into practice so that we can flourish and help others do the same. I'm Mike Austin. I'm an author, speaker, professor, and a culture consultant. My guest on the podcast today is Tom Morris. Tom's a native of Durham, North Carolina. He was a Moorhead Kane scholar at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where he, along with Michael Jordan, was actually a recipient of the Distinguished Young Alumnus Award. After that, Tom earned a PhD from Yale University and he taught philosophy at Notre Dame for 15 years. He's currently the chairman of the Morris Institute for Human Values in Wilmington, North Carolina. Tom is one of the world's top public philosophers and pioneering business thinkers. He's the author of over 30 groundbreaking books. He's an acclaimed speaker whose talks have re-engaged people around their deepest values and those talks reignite their passion for both work and life. I've seen Tom speak at my university, and it was one of the most memorable talks I've ever seen given, especially by a philosopher. Tom excels, whether it's in his writing or in his speaking, at bringing the wisdom of the past to the challenges of the present. For example, his most recent book, Plato's Lemonade Stand, draws on the great practical philosophers to give us what Tom calls the universal recipe for dealing well with challenge and leading change wisely and well. He's also a novelist. He recently completed a series of books set in Egypt during the time of 1934-1935. We'll talk about that in this and other episodes. I've read the whole series and have loved it. If you want, you can learn more about Tom, his books, his speaking, and much more at TomVMorris.com. That's TomVMorris.com. On today's episode, which is the first in a four-part series with Tom, We'll talk with him about how he got involved in bringing philosophy to the public. We'll discuss an approach to success, both in work and in life more generally, that he's written and spoken extensively about, what he calls the seven C's of success. Then we'll look at the first of those seven C's, a clear conception of what we want, a vivid vision, a goal clearly imagined. Well, first, Tom, I thought we'd ask about just how you got involved in public philosophy in the first place. Can you tell us a little bit about, about how that happened? Yeah, Mike, it, it's, it was totally unexpected. I mean, uh, I was at Notre Dame doing my thing, uh, having fun in the classroom. You know, I taught in the eighth of the student body most years. I had these giant classes. We had great fun. I was having super success in, in publishing new ideas in all the great journals and uh, sort of doing my scholarly thing. And a lady from the Chamber of Commerce in my neighborhood came to my house one day and she said, you know, when I was in college, we used to sit up late at night and talk about interesting things, Uh, you know, love and death and meaning and happiness. And she said, now I'm 45 years old. And when I get together with my friends, all we ever talk about is, you know, what's on sale at the mall? What are the kids doing? Who's Notre Dame playing this weekend? She said, we're awash in triviality. Look, we're having this thing with the chamber for ethics for young uh, leaders in the business community here in South Bend. Could you put together a talk on the ethics of decision making and give us a chance again to reflect on things that are important? And I said, wow, Linda, you're a wise person. You know, even Socrates in his time thought that the, the least important things we think about and talk about the most, the most important things we think about and talk about the least, and we should really turn that around. So rather than saying to her, well, I don't teach ethics and I've never really studied ethics and probably you want somebody else. I said, okay. And so that was my first instance of public philosophy. They may have paid me $50 or they may have paid me nothing, but everybody there that day at the chamber 
asked me to come and do my talk at their bank, their real estate company, their church. So for two years, I was going all over South Bend, Indiana, giving free talks on uh, on, on ethics. And then an Oldsmobile dealer called me and he said, you know, we have these Midwestern Oldsmobile Dealer Association meetings every year and we have motivational speakers and they all kind of say the same thing, you know, believe in yourself, you know, aim high, uh, you can do it. He said, did the great philosophers say anything about success in life? And I said, you know, that's not the kind of thing they taught us at Yale. Let me look into it. And so I ended up giving a talk, my first talk on success to the Midwestern Oldsmobile Dealers Association. And that just launched everything. Pretty soon before you knew it, I was going all over the country, then all over the world, being a public philosopher. And it got to the point where my wife would pick me up at the airport in South Bend and take me to outside my classroom to teach my class. I'd have lunch, teach another class, and she'd take me back to the airport. And at some point she said, you know what? You kind of live in three lives. You're writing full-time, you're teaching full-time, you're now speaking all over the country. You may have to make a choice at some point. You're going to burn yourself out. And I said, you know what? There are a lot of great philosophers at Notre Dame in the classroom, but there really aren't any well-trained philosophers out in the world, you know, serving the general public, ser- serving corporate life and other institutions. And so maybe I need to quit my job at Notre Dame and try to follow in the footsteps of Ralph Waldo Emerson 150 years ago and just give civic talks and business talks. And and people said, oh, wait, are you crazy? You're a full professor at Notre Dame. You've got a lifetime job guaranteed. How do you know businesses are going to be interested in what you're talking about six months from now? And I said, well, I don't. But at that point, I was really feeling a sense of calling that I was supposed to do this. And I said, you know, the only true security in life is living your proper adventure. I kind of feel like I'm called to do this, so I'm going to do it. So I guess I was the first guy to ever resign a full professorship, not to go to another university, but just to kind of hang up my shingle as a philosopher and hope for the best. <laughs> and that was 25 years ago. Yeah, that's great. I think uh, in my own experience, you start talking to people about these ideas that we're used to interacting about and and they can be revolutionary because either they didn't have a philosophy class or I don't know about you, but I often, when I tell people I'm a philosophy professor, you know, you get some good stories and some pretty bad ones if they (laughs) had a class in college. Yeah, definitely. Um, So this probably then ties in my next question is, you know, you've got a book and actually you develop these ideas in several different ways Mm -hmm. called the seven C's of success. And so Mm -hmm. I was curious about, like, how did you come to see these powerful ideas? Maybe what were, how, what were some of the philosophers that, that you drew from that, that led you to see this approach to life that's sort of present in, in the great philosophers? Yeah, now that's a good question. I mean, at first, uh, when I was asked by the Oldsmobile dealers to come and give them a talk on success, and they were talking about, you know, all the other motivational speakers said the same thing. I thought, well, what are they saying? So I went out and got all the audio tapes at the time and, and all the popular success books and you know, there's always been a self-help literature in America. And so I, I, I listened to tapes and I read books and, OK, everybody is kind of saying the same thing. So I thought to myself, um, who were the great practical philosophers? I, I kind of see philosophy as divided into two non-exclusive streams. There's the, the theoretical philosophers and then the practical philosophers. And, and the theoretical philosophers, examples would be people like Kant and Hegel and, uh, well, so many. I mean, that's, uh, that's kind of the mainstream of 20th century philosophy when we were uh, uh, trained. Um, 
but the practical philosophers, I remember hearing things about Seneca, the Roman lawyer, uh, Marcus Aurelius, the emperor of Rome, um, Epictetus, the freed slave, all known as Stoics. I remembered hearing about them. And so I went back and started reading them. And there, there were other sort of books of practical wisdom. And I went to the, the Tao Te Ching, and I went to the Analects of Confucius, and the Le to his son and uh, sorry Ralph Waldo Emerson I, I mentioned earlier you know he wrote a lot of practical stuff so I said I'm gonna go read Emerson and so I was just immersing myself for about six to nine months in all this stuff and gradually patterns seemed to emerge for me you know everybody was talking about a mental goal setting a mental goal so I came up with my first condition for success we need a clear conception of what we want we need a vivid vision a goal clearly imagined that was clear everybody was talking about that right you can't just wander through life with eyes closed you, you you've got to have some goals some some targets you're shooting for and so then as I began to explore other conditions for success kind of started to materialize and for a while I would walk my dog every day and uh think about these things after I'd been reading. And sometimes my wife would take a walk with me. And I remember telling her about five conditions for success that I had discovered from the great philosophers. And she said, really, there are five? And I said, yeah. And I said, there may be more, but I'm not sure. Well, within a few weeks, I had discovered two more. And ever since that day, so I came up with seven conditions for success from all the great philosophers. And ever since that day, people have challenged me. And you know how it goes, Mike, for us philosophers. You know, people go say, okay, you got these seven C's, a clear conception, a strong confidence, a focused concentration, a stubborn consistency, an emotional commitment, a good character to guide us, a capacity to enjoy the process. You've got all these things that start with the letter C, you know, and how about communication and creativity and collaboration just to stay with C's? You know, people would throw me all these things. And in every case, I would really consider their additional suggestion. And in every case, it would end up being a version of one of the ones we already had or a specific application of one of the universal conditions that while not itself universal, might be particularly helpful in a specific circumstance. So I would say to people, look, I'm looking for a universal set of conditions for success, whether you're struggling with something by yourself or you're on a team or you're working in a big company, um, whether it, 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 it's a, 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 an endeavor that um, is, a, is a, a secret mission or it's something that's very public, uh, whether it's in your personal life or your private life or, or your professional life, I want universal conditions, and 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 that's and then I want them to be logically structured, hopefully, and so that's kind of the way I tried to arrange things, and uh, it's been that was in the believe it or not that was in the late '80s that I came up with these things, and I've ended up publishing three books focused on these seven conditions, and I've got another one just finished. The question you ask about where in the philosophers. People ask that question so many times, I decided to do a whole book on that. And so now I've got a manuscript finished called The Wisdom Collector, where I go through all the primary documents where I discovered these things and show the twists and turns you get from Chinese philosophers or medieval Islamic philosophers or a Jesuit in the Renaissance or a Buddhist uh, monk. It's, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, that's what's always remarkable to me. When you start looking at some of these things, they're present across... Yeah, different time periods, different religious yeah. religious perspectives. People with no yep. no religion at all. Yep, um, absolutely. Different views about other areas of philosophy, but there's this really interesting intersection about, you know, what a good life is for a human being, what genuine true success. Is. 
I want to dive into these a little more in depth, um, each of the seven C's. But first, I wanted to just have you say a bit about the series of novels that you've published over the past oh, few yeah. years, because I, I've read them. And as you know, I love them. Um, I think they, fe- they feature these ideas, of course, in, a, in the setting of a novel. So just tell us a little bit about that. We'll go in. in- but yeah, I wanted absolutely. to at least introduce people to it now. Uh, okay, that, that, that's great. And as a matter of fact, I'd never thought I would write novels at all. Uh, I was at breakfast one morning uh, in February in 2011. And before I finished breakfast, toasting jelly and peanut butter or something, some coffee, and I was going to go upstairs and work on a book on change that I've worked on for a very long time and just was published called Plato's Lemonade Stand. But um, before I could get out of my chair, it was like I was I was having the most vivid daydream of my life, and like nothing I'd ever experienced. I'm a daydreamer, but this was like daydream on steroids. This was like daydreaming a movie theater. I'm seeing a desert there with me in the kitchen with an old man and a young boy, and they're sitting under a palm tree, and there are these bright blankets rolled up behind them, and they're having this amazing conversation. And a few sentences into the conversation, I went carrying upstairs to my study. I just ran up the stairs and started typing as fast as I could on my computer. Uh, it's almost like the movie paused to let me get there, and I started typing 10 pages of of, uh, of something, um, which I put on Huffington Post. And within an hour, I was getting emails from all over the world. People saying, what is this? This is great. Is this part of a book? I want more of this. And I had to say, I don't know what this is. <laughs> the next day, movie played again, 10 more pages. The third day, I woke up and saw a book cover with the words, The Oasis Within. And I thought, I'm writing a book. And so long story short, the movie played in my head most days for five years, generating eight novels of over a million words, the Oasis Within being the prologue or prelude, a kind of a quiet conversational introduction to a couple of the main characters that end up engaged in an action and adventure set of stories that transpire over a year and a half in Egypt in 1934 and 1935. Uh, an adventure I never thought I would have. And people early on were saying, well, this is Harry Potter meets Indiana Jones meets Plato and Aristotle. People were saying all kinds of extraordinary things about the books. But the books, my agents wouldn't even look at them. They would say to me, no, you're not a fiction guy. You're a nonfiction guy. Give us your next nonfiction book. And I would say, but guys, but guys, this this is a way of doing philosophy, too. It's a surprising way of doing philosophy. No, no, you're not known in the fiction world. Give us a nonfiction book. What they should have told me is they weren't known in the fiction world. Mm-hmm. They would have no idea what editors to send the books to. So after being turned down by my own agents for two years, I finally said, I'm going to do these books myself. I created an imprint. I hired good people to be the production folks and the editors and all that. And we got the books out. And I'm glad you asked about them because now I come to see that they're all about the seven C's of success. They're all about uh, another framework of ideas I published in a book called If Aristotle Ran General Motors, Truth, Beauty, Goodness, and Unity. All the philosophy I've ever done is somehow embodied in the stories and the lives of these characters. It's the most remarkable thing I'd ever experienced. Yeah, it's a fascinating you know, reading about it and talking with you about it in the past, just that, that creative process. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's dive in then. You already touched on this first, but the first of the seven C's is a, a clear conception of what we want, a vivid vision, a goal clearly imagined. Could you say a little bit more just about what that is? And then maybe uh, touch on if there's a reason that it's the first of the seven C's. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, we need, we need to set goals in life. Uh, 
Other, otherwise, you know, life can be pretty, pretty aimless. And a lot of people experience this. Uh, they, they don't know where they are or where they're going. Uh, Aristotle had this view that we are essentially teleological creatures. And, and, and from the Greek word, as you know, telos or goal or target or bullseye for a, a, an archer to shoot at. Our lives need to be structured around clear goals or we just don't feel satisfied. We're not operating at full capacity. So and these are we need to start with a mental conception. Uh, and, and so that's why I have as my first condition. It doesn't just say a goal. It says a clear conception of what we want. Now, the clarity is important because vague thoughts cannot motivate specific behavior. I've seen people who set vague goals and nothing ever happens mm. because the vagueness of the goal doesn't inherently suggest steps to take to realize the goal. Whereas the more specific a goal is, something interesting happens that Gestalt psychologists have talked about for uh, almost 50 to 100 years that when we set a clear goal, we establish a new interpretive grid for looking at the world. I mean, a vivid example for me was that when I was in uh, at Notre Dame, at one point I thought about buying a convertible. And at the particular time, I was attracted to Saab convertibles. Now, that's a, a brand car that you don't see everywhere. And so I started getting the brochures and, and looking it up and going to the Saab dealership in South Bend to look at convertibles. And, and then all of a sudden, within a few days, it seemed like every stoplight I was at, there were Saab convertibles in South Bend, Indiana. And I said, wait a minute, what's going on here? I'm not my mind is not making Saab convertibles pop into existence all over northern Indiana. But I started noticing things that I hadn't been noticing when I didn't have a goal set about a certain kind of car. But then once I had set a goal uh, from which I eventually departed, actually, I, I ended up not getting a Saab convertible. But for a while, I had it as, as a potential goal, and that was a pl pretty clear goal. So it made me notice things relevant to it. And that's a powerful point. When we have a really clear conception of what we want to see happen, of what we want to accomplish, um, a vivid vision, the book of Proverbs says, without a vision, people perish, a goal clearly imagined. When we have all that to start with, then we begin to notice things around us that are relevant to that to that goal. That our mental conception gives us a, 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 a perceptual grid for sort of looking at the world differently. And so that starts the whole process. That's why it's the first condition for success, because the second condition, for example, being a strong confidence we can attain the goal. Well, you, you can't have confidence in a goal until you have a goal, right? And so when I talk to business groups about what kind of clear conception do we want? What kind of vivid vision? What kind of goals do we really imagine? It's got to be rooted in self-knowledge. It's got to be realistic, rooted in your talents, your, your, your desires, your, who you are as a person. Uh, and it's got to be rooted in a knowledge of the world. So, so a lot of people make, make it sound like you know, blank slate. You just come up with something out of the blue, right? And, and I actually had a, a college student come to me once and he said, I don't have any goals and I don't know how to get any goals. When I think about goals, my mind is a blank. I said, take out a sheet of paper. And recently a corporate coach told me that he thinks the most powerful tool any corporate co coach has is a blank sheet of paper <laughs> with a line drawn down the middle, he said. Take a sheet of paper, draw a line down the middle uh, uh, vertically and put on one side the heading things about my life I like right now and put on the other heading things about my life I don't like right now and start listing stuff. 
And this will give you a list of things you need to change and things you need to preserve. And the things you need to change can be objects of new gold. But the things you need to preserve need to be kept in mind as well. So, uh, you know, it's amazing to me, Mike, that, the, the, like you said, philosophers can disagree about all kinds of things. But there's this amazing convergence when it comes to the practical things across cultures throughout the centuries. Uh, in every kind of context whatsoever, wise people seem to have understood we need to be goal setters. We need to be people who conceive of a future different from the present while preserving parts of the present that are good to preserve. But we need to have a clear conception of, of where we want to go. And in times like we're living through right now, uncertain, turbulent, challenging times, it's hard for people to see ahead. It used to be everybody said, oh, you need to have five-year goals. Well, now... If you can have five month goals, you're lucky, right? Right. Yeah. Sometimes five days is good enough for me, right? Now. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Maybe you sort of address this, but I, I thought I'd press it because it's kind of a focus of a lot of what what we do on the podcast. Can are there any other practical steps, like practical steps, you might offer somebody who wants to really develop at least a, a clearer conception, right? If they, yeah. If they're looking at this condition, what else might yeah. they do besides the the sheet of paper? Any other ideas? Yeah. Well, have a conversation about it with somebody. I mean, uh, uh, talking at its best is not just a form of communicating. Talking at its best is a form of thinking. Or begin to write down, journal some thoughts about possible goals. Writing like talking can be a form of thinking. I mean, we've all had the experience when we were in college as students. You think you understand a subject and you go in to take the exam and write on it. You realize you're thoughts are a lot vaguer and more confused than you realize when we when we write down ideas or when we talk through ideas uh, we can come up we can realize we can clarify what was otherwise really really vague most people have had the experience of having a conversation with another person where you came away having learned something not from what you heard them say but from what you heard yourself saying in that conversation. I think that's part of the reason Socrates wanted to do philosophy through conversations, because things get clarified in a conversational context. So, so talk about your goals with other people or write, write about possible goals. That really helps in the clarification process, and that really helps in the, in the goal setting. Lots of philosophers also, another practical tip, have said aim high, you know, dream big, aim high. I think it was Montaigne I first came across saying aim high. Well, I've come to realize that sometimes we need to aim small. Uh, sometimes we set small goals that will take us places we could never even have dreamed we would be able to go. Um, I, I like to tell the story of uh, at the age of 58, I decided to get in better shape. So I went into the weight room and I'd never done bench press in my whole life, you know, lying on the bench with the weights above you on a long bar. And I saw a guy about my age. He, I counted up the weights on his bar. He had 85 pounds, including the bar. And I thought, okay, I'm going to try to do that. So I did, you know, eight, my 85 pounds and I would do that every day. I would go into the gym and nobody told me you're not supposed to do bench press every day. I would go in every day and, and do my 85 pounds, you know, 10, five or 10 reps or something. And a guy came up to me and introduced himself and he said, Hey, I want to be your workout partner. And, and I said, you do. And he said, yeah, you make more noise than anybody else in the gym. <laughs> and I said, well, how's that relevant? And he said, you're the only guy in here really trying. I want to work out with you. I said, okay. So he said to me, 
I saw you do this 85 pounds. Let's let's put on five more. I think you can do five more. And he would say then a few days later, let's put on 10 pounds more. Or the next week he'd say, let's put on fifth. And so setting small incremental goals. Uh, by the time I was 63 years old, I was benching 315 pounds. And when I started at age 58, if my friend Don had come up to me and said, okay, let's set your goal. You're going to bench 315 pounds. I would have said, that's stupid. That's absurd. That will <laughs> never happen, you know. And uh, because I set small goals, it got me on a path. It started moving me in a direction. And so I would encourage people, you don't have to always set big, huge goals. But if you do, immediately start setting small goals to move you in that direction. Yeah, that's really good. Well, we'll we'll wrap this up for today. And then next time we'll start looking at uh, the next couple of the seven C's of success. So until then, thanks, Tom. Oh, yeah, Mike. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like, leave a voice message with a comment or a question uh, by going to anchor.fm forward slash flourish with MWA. That's anchor.fm forward slash flourish with MWA. You'll see a place there where you can click on uh, the message icon to do that. I'll choose some of your questions or comments to address in future episodes. You can also connect with, with me if you'd like on Twitter at Michael W. Austin. That's on Twitter at Michael W. Austin. I look forward to hearing from you there. Next time, we'll continue our discussion with Tom Morris about the next two seven C's of success. Until then, remember, through careful thought and sustained passion, you can truly flourish and help others do the same.